Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hey, oboists! Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hello. <laughs> Folks, you're hearing the sounds of a woman with low blood sugar right I'm now. Hungry. I just got done with a long day of work and then three hours of Zoom meetings. And my life is hard. It's the hardest. And my dog won't stop acting crazy. And I just need some food. But you know what? Come rain or come shine, this episode needs to be released. So here I am. <laughs> Okay, well, we know Grumpy Jackie is my favorite Jackie. (laughs) Well, you had a brilliant idea for our dish topic today. Tell the people what it is. I thought, what if, I don't know actually what even spurred this on. I have not watched Aladdin recently, or I Dream of Genie, or any of the sorts. Tell if our listeners know the reference of Aladdin. I'm sure they know Aladdin. I'm 100% sure they do not know I Dream of Genie. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) And I Dream of Genie is too uh, old for our time to be fair. When we were coming up, there was a little thing called Nick at Night. Yes. On this thing called cable television. (laughs) And I loved watching Nick at Night, the Donna Reed show, Dragnet, all that stuff. But now I realize what is Nick at Night for them? Like Full House? That must be what's on Nick at Night. Oh, God. Do they have Nick at Night still? Does Nick at Night still exist? Listeners, we need to know, does Nick at Night still exist? And is it Full House and things that we think of as contemporary? Is it probably Friends. (laughs) Also, if my sound quality is bad, I'm sorry. I forgot my mic at work. And the alternate method that we had planned to use, I think it might not be working because it's picking up you as well. Oh, no. So it'll, it's just, listen, this is a free service. 
I've had a long day. You get the mic quality that you get, okay? And you don't get upset. It's one episode. They'll have my back on this. Anyway, <laughs> Jackie's great idea for the dish was <laughs> what would your, if you had a genie pop out of a magic lamp and offer you three double read wishes, what would they be? So Jackie, I want to start with yours. What would your wishes be? I don't even know. Okay. I would um want a super reliable high register. I feel like mm-hmm. the super high register I've never been like super great at. Um, I would want how about to never have to swab mm. again? Mm. That would be pretty That's a cool. good one. And um how about to have perfect intonation that's those are really good okay yeah that's 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 what's coming to my mind I probably should be more creative and be like I never have to practice I can just sight read perfectly or something like that but it as aforementioned my blood sugar is low and uh, (laughs) it's long what would your three wishes be uh my first would be an oboe with an easily accessible range of a cello. Oh, so like a super low register on the oboe? A super low and super high register on the oboe without the fingers being hard to reach. So some sort of slide whistle system where you, you could elongate the bore and make it lower and then shorten it and make it higher without having to do anything different with your fingers. Do you know that there's an instrument that is an oboe with the register of a cello, Did, have you ever heard of this thing? Well, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a it's little called confused. a bassoon. <laughs> I bought an oboe with the register of a cello. It's a bassoon. No, the range. I want the range. I want an oboe that can play like six octaves. Do you know what those bottom three octaves are going to be? The bassoon. Fine. <laughs> you would wish for a bassoon. What's your second wish? <laughs> My second wish is teleportation so that I can play with all of my friends who live so far away. (laughs) Jackie. Oh, that's a sweet, that's a sweet wish. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my third is uh, uh, a, an always full read case of beautiful reads. So like it's a self replenishing read case. That's a really good one. Do you know the other one I thought of for oboe? Because Mm -hmm. like y'all's instruments crack and wear out and that type of stuff, Mm -hmm. but you can't make them out of maple or whatever because it would be so heavy. Like what Mm -hmm. if you had an instrument that didn't get old and didn't crack? Mm. Eternal youth, but for oboes. Internal oboe youth. (laughs) That's a good way. It It feels like the first day you try it. Every day of its life. And you don't have to break it in. You can just. Oh, yeah. Your new oboe. Uh-huh. Heck yeah. Yeah. That's my fourth wish. Okay. Well, what do our listeners have to say? Okay. So our listeners had excellent wishes. Keenan says, for every read I make to be a superstar read. Yes. Uh, number two wish would be go back to number one. And number three wish would be go back to number two. 
But okay, here's what I, the issue I take and shout out to Keenan. Uh, Keenan was is a student of Javier Rodriguez at UI. I taught him during Javier's sabbatical replacement. Hi, Keenan. Um, this wish you still have to make just as many reads, but they're all good. Like, wouldn't it be better to have a wish for an everlasting read? Correct. Okay, here are Karima's wishes. Have a fast tongue, perfect technique, and good read making. Again, the good read making. How about just mm-hmm. one read that never ages? This is turning into Stump Jackie. I, I support the first two. I, I support the first two. Reeve says, one, reads last forever. Check. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Reeve is on the right track here. Two, my bassoon came together and apart in the snap of a finger, swabbed and everything. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. I can get behind this. Absolutely. Three, I can carry everything in one compact light case. This is the winner. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't heard all of them yet. (laughs) No more pack mule walking across campus. <laughs> okay, this is from Serena, who I actually just had the chance to meet this weekend. So hello, Serena. Number one, always have a good read. Not always make a good read. Always have wow. a good read. A good mm-hmm. read. Okay. Two, horn is never out of adjustment. <gasps> As someone, oh my God, who had to try to survive in a double reads job. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's the actual wish. Like, Oh my God. For the oboes not to break. It would be like, my elbow's out of adjustment. And I'd be like, no, (laughs) please, please. No, not again. Not again. Yes. That would have been my wish then for sure. Okay. Here's the third one from Serena. Never have water in your keys. Oh, that's a good one. Mm -hmm. Those are very good. Okay. Olivia says, always have a good read 100%. Okay, I'm a, a through line across our. <laughs> Where is our suffering the greatest? <laughs> Two reads last forever. Okay, and they would be overlapping wishes. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's smart. Three, I would miraculously have great ease and facility. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, Shannon says one. Free quality instruments for all double read students or anyone who cannot afford one. So Shannon is the first person to wish for something not for herself. So good job, Shan Shan. You're a good person. Not me. Unlike the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) Two, reads that magically work all the time, no matter when and no matter where and no matter what. Three, more solos for double read players in newly composed large ensemble works. And not even newly composed. How about oldly composed? Just magically move some solos into the double reads. Yes. Like, oh, I'd like that. Oh, um, what's one I'd like to steal? I'm trying to think. I don't know. Like maybe the Swan Lake solo that the oboes get. Like mm-hmm. what if yeah, I that's play a good that one. on bassoon? Mm. Okay. Kylie says. One, consistent cane that always makes the same size opening and scrapes the same. So Kylie's still into making reads. And Kylie sounds like a noblest. (laughs) (laughs) Two, reads that are perfectly in tune. And three, a tongue that could move at the speed of light when conductors want to play hoedown at 130 plus beats per minute. Yeah, I mean, 
I think we all have those tonguing excerpts that we wish we could get a genie on our side to execute for sure. Beethoven mm-hmm. four, Figaro. Instead, we just have to practice. Lucky us. <laughs> None of these wishes will come true, but isn't it nice to dream together? <laughs> Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. We are so excited to welcome to Double Reed Dish, Robert Sheena, English horn player of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and the Boston Pops Orchestra. Welcome, Rob. Thank you so much, Jackie. I'm very happy to be here, Jackie and uh, Galit as well. We always start in the same way. Uh, I assume that though you are an English horn player primarily now that you started on oboe, so can we hear about how you began to play the oboe? Yes, uh, <clears throat> certainly. Well, um, uh, rolling the clock back all the way till when I was perhaps uh, eight or so, maybe seven or eight, I did have piano lessons quite extensively until I was, it was sort of a preteen or so, maybe 11 or 12, and uh, was in junior high school, at which point um, I my mother rented a flute for me. And I can't remember why that particular instrument at the time, other than I guess we had a, what it was is we had a band program in, uh, in public school in San Francisco. So I gravitated toward that. But uh, in any case, just a few months in one day, um, the band director raised his hand and sort of looked out at the group and said, I need an oboe player. And, um, and I sort of vaguely knew what that was and thought, yeah, I, you know, I kind of think I like the sound of that instrument. I'll, I'll try it. So he gave me the school oboe, which I took home that night and promptly broke the first night. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, it wasn't really my fault in a way, but, but uh, I've told this story many times. It was quite funny. The previous kid, dumb kid, whoever that was, had put a fishing weight, a small fishing weight on the end of the swab that's supposed to go through. And, but it didn't, it didn't fit. So it immediately got stuck. You know, <laughs> that's how he attached it. So I was, of course, totally horrified. And I took the oboe back to school the next day. And, uh, you know, any good junior high school band director worth their salt has probably seen it all and, you know, had to fix all kinds of issues. And um, he had a, a, like a dowel, you know, like a, just a thin uh, wooden dowel, which he somehow procured somewhere and, and poked through the top joint to get the thing out. Um, so, you know, no harm done. So, uh, but that, yeah, that was it. So that's, that's how I got started. And, you know, I, I started taking private lessons, I suppose, sometime around age 13 or 14. Um, 
my first oboe teacher was uh, the second oboe player in the San Francisco Opera Orchestra, a woman named Debbie Henry, who sadly has uh, since passed on. But um, she was a student of Eldon Gatwood originally from the uh, Pittsburgh Symphony when she was a kid growing up. And then she went to San Francisco to study with Mark Lifshe, who also ended up being a teacher. But anyway, that's my start. Well, I assume that the moment you got your swab stuck in your oboe for the first time was not the moment that you decided to be a professional musician. So I would love to hear about that moment. Sure. Uh, uh, Okay. Well, that was an evolution more than anything, I'd have to say, because uh, it wasn't like I sort of exactly woke up one day and thought, you know, I want to do this or I can do this. But but the progression was something like uh, getting serious enough about it in high school that I auditioned for the Oakland Youth Symphony. That was the main, the premier group in the Bay Area in those days. Now it's really the San Francisco Youth Symphony. But in those days, it was the Oakland Youth Symphony. They were fabulous. I had a friend who got into it. And so I auditioned and I didn't get in. Uh, I must have been 16 or I guess I was 16 at the time. So I was I was pretty upset by that. But then when I got to UC Berkeley, um, you know, not a traditional music school, uh, I um, uh, I got into the university orchestra. The conductor thought I had some ability and he put me on first oboe in the Schubert Great C Major Symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my first time of actually playing in a, you know, in a symphony orchestra. And I, I loved it. I mean, I, I just thought, wow, because the music was also fantastic. So, um, so I started thinking about being a music major as it was and uh, kept taking lessons. And by this point, I was now studying with the first oboe player in the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra, a man named William Banavitz, not to be confused with William Bennett, the first oboe player in the San Francisco Symphony, who uh, who joined right when I was in college, actually. And curiously, he and I weren't that far apart in age, even. I mean, he was, when he got that job uh, at first, he was, I don't know, he must have been only 23, 24. I was 17 or 18. I called him a remarkable him player. Incredible, incredible, incredible talent right from the beginning. And I called him up hoping I could take lessons with him. And uh, he didn't want to teach me. He was, I, I think he was very smart to not teach at that time because he was untenured and, you know, still finding his way. If I was in his shoes, I would have probably said no to anybody, too. So um, so I had, uh, but Bill Banovitz was an absolutely fantastic teacher, uh, really tough on me, but also helpful. So, uh, so, uh, so then I, uh, to try to answer the question a little more directly, I, uh, I started to feel more confident through college. I feel like maybe I could do this. And then I got a scholarship, uh, from UC Berkeley of all things to basically go anywhere for a year, uh, to study. And I used it, uh, to apply directly toward tuition at Northwestern, uh, where I had a year with Ray Still. So for a master's degree, um, so by that, you know, by that point, of course, I was all in. So that was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to do this. So Ray Still is such a legend in the oboe world. Can you tell us about studying with him? Yeah, sure. Of course. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, it was a huge inspiration to study with him because um, he was uh, kind of a force of nature is maybe the best way to put it. Um, he was an incredible musician, first and foremost, I think. He loved music deeply. Uh, he was very passionate about it. 
Um, he had a very kind of his own sort of style of playing the oboe. A lot of things that he developed in a way, especially with regard to breath control, how he approached the air. Um, but uh, I, I did love his sense of phrasing and sense of long line with the oboe um, and, uh, and rhythm. He had a profoundly uh, strong rhythmic sense, I think, that kind of went through everything that he did in a way. Um, uh, to be honest, I, I think he was not a particularly great reed maker. I think he, he would probably self-admit, if were he alive, that he struggled with that. Um, so I, I feel like I didn't learn a great deal about reed making from him, uh, I have to say, to, to be honest. Um, but, uh, but just hearing him play, a big part of my uh, lessons with him, if I can call it that, was going to Chicago Symphony Concerts. Actually, mm -hmm. I think I got some of my greatest inspiration and training. Just I, I went to Chicago Symphony Concerts, I think, every week. Um, and in those days, I have to say, it wasn't easy because there was not, uh, there wasn't a student rush ticket or anything like that. You had to pay full price. And because they were a really hot ticket, uh, you couldn't get tickets. I was, it was often sold out, you know, which, which made it all the more desirable. So, um, I think it was a very exciting time to, to be in Chicago and hear that orchestra at that time when Schulte was the music director. So, but I will say that, uh, I also developed my, uh, deep sort of friendship and uh, what's the right word? Uh, he became kind of a mentor to me with the English horn player, Grover Schiltz. Mm -hmm. Because after grad school, I studied with him, um, sort of like a post-degree kind of thing, just privately. And actually, I mostly just studied the oboe, uh, not that much of the English horn. Um, in some ways, I think he was the best teacher of all the teachers I had. And that was partially because he was very balanced in his criticism. I try to emulate that. It was sort of, you know, instead of being, some te some teachers could be, especially oboe teachers, can be a bit histrionic, you know, theatrical, like they get upset, like, no, it was terrible, you know, or wow, that was amazing. And Grover was just sort of flat tone, sort of like, nope, you know, do that again. Nope, do it again, you know. Okay, you're not getting the idea, go home and practice it, you know. <laughs> you know, which as opposed, you know, and then, but he would compliment when things were, when I got it, but you know what I mean? It was, it was a more even, even handed kind of approach to teaching, which I appreciate. Um, uh, it was this, its own skill. Can we hear more about, um, uh, I don't want to use an assumptive word, but um, how you came to focus on the English horn or specialize on the English horn and your journey to the Boston Symphony? Sure, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I came to focus on the English horn uh, because I found I had some aptitude for it and I liked playing it. I guess that's the first and foremost thing. And also, quite frankly, I just I just wanted sort of any job I could get uh, uh, where I could support myself. And so I realized that I could shoot at more auditions, quite frankly, if I had an English horn. Um, and so that was, you know, I'm, I'm 62 now. So we're talking about, uh, after grad school, that was the mid 1980s. Um, and I was auditioning for everything that moved second oboe somewhere, principal oboe somewhere. And then, um, 
So I bought an English horn uh, around the time I played in the Civic Orchestra in Chicago, which was about 1986 or so. And I think my very first audition, I did pretty well, um, which, as I recall, at least audition on that instrument, which was um, I auditioned for the, the Denver Symphony. Well, I think, what was it called then? Maybe it was called the Colorado Colorado Symphony. I can't remember. It's, it's gone through various names. Mm-hmm. But there were, it was, you know, there were a lot of players. Uh, I don't know, I think maybe 50 players or something. I somehow got down to the final four. Um, and so, of course, that was encouraging. You know, it was like, oh, well, maybe I, maybe I can do this. Um, and so then, why, so then I, I played in the, as you might know, I don't know, you know, how much you read my bio or how much it matters, but I, I, I won a job playing in the Hong Kong Philharmonic. Um, uh, so I was associate principal oboe there and English horn. And then I went to the San Antonio symphony, weirdly enough from Hong Kong, uh, in the same job, actually, believe it or not, the, the, the position was associate principal oboe and English horn. Is that common nowadays? No, okay. I don't think it's common at all. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think English horn is like, if it's a big orchestra, that's like, that's it. Or mm-hmm. if it's a, you know, uh, orchestra with a maybe smaller budget it's it's second in english horn uh right that kind of thing i think i guess maybe sometimes but what what do you think are there are there places where it's i have actually never heard of a job being associate principal and english horn yeah 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 Yeah. no that 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 was what it was at the time and that's changed now i suppose Mm -hmm. and maybe it was just happened to be those two unusual situations so um so uh, to fast forward a little bit to uh, getting into the BSO, which is an interesting story I've probably told before, but um, uh, it was a long process, the audition here. Um, I had to jump through a lot of hoops. Um, I was not, so this, we're now, we're now at uh, sometime in 1993, maybe the, the summer of 1993. So I was, I was, I, applied for the audition. I was told that I had to make a recording. Um, I, I was playing in San Antonio already, but I had to make a recording. To be honest, I was a little annoyed at that. I thought, oh, wait a minute, this is sort of a, you know, good enough orchestra. I should, can't I be invited? But anyway, that was, that was the game. Um, I had not, I'd sent recordings to other orchestras that had not gotten anything accepted at that point. Um, maybe partially because I didn't know what I was doing recording things well. And so I, um, I worked really hard at that recording and just made it kind of unimpeachable. You know, there was like, you couldn't really, you, maybe it wasn't the most musical thing in the world, but you couldn't find anything, you couldn't find fault with it. Um, and to do that, I, I started working a month before it was due. I, I rented a recording studio in, in uh, I happened to be in San Francisco at the time, visiting family, and I just recorded everything and then, um, quite frankly, took it home and kind of ripped it to shreds. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. I just, I, 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 some things were good. I liked some things. And then if something was a little out of tune or a little out of rhythm that I noticed after listening to it a lot, I went back and recorded it again. Mm-hmm. So I, I broke the rules, to be honest. I mean, the rules are sort of like, oh, you should just lay it down in one track. This is your playing, blah, blah, blah. Yes, in, in, indeed, that's true. Um, but you see, I learned a lot uh, just going through that process for myself. Um, 
So, um, so even though in a way uh, it wasn't just sit down and play it, although by the end by the end of the of that whole process, I could have done that. I'm sure. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that's a long way of saying that there, it got through. Right, um, it passed the committee. So then I started, you know, really working hard, and uh, uh, it wasn't even a very big list of excerpts. I don't even think there was a concerto because English horn. In a way, you don't need a concerto. Everything is a solo. So um, uh, I, I was invited to the audition. So there were preliminaries and then semifinals. And then then to the finals, there was just four of us. And then uh, we were invited back to finals with the orchestra. That was a big deal because that was an hour of overtime for the Boston Symphony. And each of us wow. played 15 minutes back to back one after the other. Wow. Right? That's so, really intense. It was very intense. Yeah. It was me and my dear friend, the late Laura Albeck, uh -huh. uh, who uh, is married. To my other was well, until she died, was married to my other dear friend, Rick Ranty, the recently retired associate principal bassoon. So it was me and Laura Albeck and my other close friend, uh, Michael Rosenberg, um, as a name you may not know, he plays English horn in the Stuttgart Radio Orchestra. Oh. He's an American, uh, but uh, he was already there. And then also another friend, we're all friends, you know, it's a small club, the English horn world, Kerry Ebley. Um, he was the other finalist. He plays English horn in Toronto. So uh, then it was down to me and Kerry, um, and we each had a trial. So I played for a month, and he played for a month. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sorry to say that he didn't win for me. <laughs> I mean, he has a great job, uh, too already, but, uh, yeah, uh, but I was lucky and Sage, wanted me. So, so uh, what were your emotions in the moment? Uh, you how, mean, how did that, how did that all go down when they told you that you had won the job? Uh, well, I was thrilled, of course, and and I guess relieved to have made it through to that point. And and it was it was my dream. Uh, it is my dream. Um, so I just felt incredibly lucky. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, look, let's be honest. I, I did work hard. I, I did think that I deserved it to some degree. But also, you know, it's, it's there's luck and some fate and. Uh, be, quite frankly, in a way, being at the right place at the right time or something, you know, like I, I had passed through a number, a number of hoops to get to that point, you know, so, uh, and it opened at a time when I was ready for it, these kind of things, you know. Um, yeah, so, um, uh, the, I, the, my trial ended in, what was that? It was March of 1994, and I played for a month, and I, I recorded Bartok and Sheriff for Orchestra with, with the BSO and Miraculous Mandarin, the whole thing. Mm. We'd gone on tour to Carnegie Hall. It was a lot of high-pressure things. Um, but then I was told I, I, I got the job, and I flew home to San Antonio, um, and uh, we had a party. Uh, I was now about to leave, I guess, right? We had a party, and my daughter Katie who's now 32 was only uh, something over two at the time I guess and I, I was uh, excitedly swinging here around swinging here around the 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 yard before the party and 
uh, her shoulder dislocated partially. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, terrible absolutely terrible so we hurried up and canceled the party got in the car and went to the emergency room and it slipped back in place because when you're and it was okay we didn't even make it <laughs> she was fine uh you know kids are kind of plotting highs and lows <laughs> yeah uh so i feel incredible just you know beyond fortunate to have have had the career I've had now that I'm actually you know staring down the barrel of retirement in a few years, um, whatever that is. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's been I've been really lucky. And you know, we at least I'm guilty of this. Uh, looking at um, these amazing orchestral careers, big five orchestras, and really. Um, Kind of having, you know, so much admiration, perhaps to the point of hero worship for the people who get to occupy these phenomenal chairs. And I think sometimes that can translate into, you know, oh, they, they've they never um, dealt with doubt or adversity or, you know, they came out of utero into that chair. And <laughs> I, I wonder if you've, you know... Obviously, that's not true. And so I you to talk to us at all <laughs> about your experiences, um, you know, maybe on the other side of glory, what challenges have you faced in the course of your career? Right. Thank you. That's a great question, Jackie. Well, I would say that I, uh, uh, I'm so glad you asked the question and, and it's, it, it can't sort of be re- repeated enough how, uh, you know, we're all mere mortals and we all have struggles. I will say that there's a handful of people, I'm not, I'm absolutely not going to name names, but there are a few people who are really exceptionally talented and it does, you do get the impression a few people have not had to work as hard as some of us, right? You, you, you know, you know who you are out there, right? You're not on your own. But they're very, very few. But the rest of us, uh, you know, have, there's had to be some some grit and determination and uh and uh, falling backwards i suppose before you you know uh you know uh, three steps forward maybe and two steps back or something like that so so yeah i would say i guess about challenges um uh i would say uh gosh well an overarching challenge i i alluded to a little bit when I talked about my audition preparation, but has been, I guess I'd have to put it this way, um, trying to be positively self-critical. So um, I think it's especially easy for double read players. Maybe we, we all tend to be a bit neurotic. Uh, I don't, I don't use that word as a uh, pejorative as a, as too much of a critical word. I think you sort of have to be a bit neurotic. Um, uh, but it can be damaging if you're sort of too hard on yourself and kind of not sort of honestly hard on yourself. So you don't want to just, you know, beat yourself up and say, oh, I'm terrible at everything. You know, you have to hang on to what you're doing well. And I think that's the trick is to be is to try to be objective. So um, so, for example, in my career, one of the things that I've been so many lucky things uh we, we record all our concerts and we have very high definition recording equipment in Symphony Hall and all of us players have ready access to that. So I can, I can give myself a lesson sort of anytime I want to and listen to playbacks. Um, and to be honest with you, I often don't like it. <laughs> uh, 
I, I mean that. I, you know, I, or I find, you know, I'm always finding something. You know, sometimes I'm finding things that are good, and then I'm finding things that are that I could do better, or or I was surprised at, I suppose. And then, and sometimes I think it's actually the recording quality, even as good as it is. You know, microphone placement um, is an issue. Uh, we did. Uh, Digressing for just a moment, we recorded Quiet City uh, at Tanglewood live uh, two summers ago, to, uh, 2022, for Deutsche Grammophon live, right? It was, it was like, talk about pressure, it was like, you know, kind of no mistakes. And it was supposed to be on, um, uh, paired with a recording of John Williams' second violin concerto with Anna Sophie Mutter. That was the main thing we were doing, but they happened to sort of add this on. And No big deal. And boy, did they put the microphone too close. I mean, mm. uh, it was like, and maybe it's because they thought English horn is soft or whatever. It was just the stage configuration. Everything was hurried. Um, and I was disappointed because I thought I sounded really distorted. Uh, uh, Tom, our wonderful principal trumpet, had the microphone like, you know, I don't know, six feet away or something. And just sounded, I thought, round and soft and glorious, you know. And then the English horn was like this loud, distorted, you know what I mean? Uh, I'm really off the topic, but um, <clears throat> yeah, so uh, overcoming your sort of the challenge of how you view yourself, I suppose, uh, and, and how you stay positive. I, I, I will say on the flip side, we've done uh, uh, these Shostak Overture recordings, and I've gotten to actually do some editing of those solos myself. Um, and I'm, I'm happy with that. I think the, they, those have come out really well. Uh, the sound and the, the, the way I sound is more or less how I'd like to sound, I think. So, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, uh, a big challenge, a huge challenge uh, for all of us, I would have to say, and why we're here in a way, is, is reads, right? Um, and how do I, how have I overcome that? Um, I've I've had a uh, I've had a laugh with other English horn colleagues like my friend uh, Elizabeth Masudnia, um, who I think maybe you interviewed already. Did you? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, you know we, we've all had this experience where uh, I'll play the English horn solidly for three weeks and not have really had any time to even pick up an oboe, and then I pick up the oboe and I sound like poop, you know, just. <laughs> just don't like how I sound. And so then I, and then I have to sort of remind myself sort of why that is, but then I feel like I have to kind of climb the mountain again. You know, I have to spend after a few hours or, you know, scraping the read or whatever it, it comes back. But that's a big, that has been a big challenge for me is, uh, it's, it's, it's very hard to sound good consistently on both instruments. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to say, um, I, I rarely feel like I'm sounding good on both at the same time, unless I just am working like crazy at it. So at both. Um, similarly, I mean, if I play the oboe, nothing but the oboe for a while, you know, but it's it, honestly the, the, the English horn is, let's be honest. I think it's a little easier to make a, a, a good sound. I found uh, the oboe is harder to consistently make a good sound on. So, um, so that, uh, but, um, and then, uh, another thing I would have to say, another challenge, um, and this partially is related to, um, playing one instrument exclusively for a few weeks is just 
caring for the instruments meticulously. So I'm talking about um, avoiding cracks in the wintertime, binding, you know, because I live in a very cold climate, binding keys, uh, water and octave keys, you know, I'm trying to make sure that none of those things happen. And I found some tricks and solutions for some of those things. So can we hear those? Yeah, you can. Uh, uh, and I'd like to hear your feedback a little bit too. So, um, uh, water and octave keys, uh, is an interesting one because as we all know, a lot of times it's an old pad or it's, they're dirty. So there's capillary action that draws the water. Um, and sometimes you, you know, I, I could, I could probably replace a pad myself, but I'm not in the practice of doing it in the habit of doing it. So it'd probably be messy and I wouldn't be happy. So I have a good repair person I go to, but let's say you're busy. It's hard to get there. You know, what are you going to do in the short term? So what I found that works for me is I, uh, I take the keys off. I use some compressed air and a little, the little red thing to blast any water out of the octave vents. And then I take a, a very small thin piece of English horn wire um, and I put just a drop of Rain-X on it. Mm, like a silicone yeah. spray? Yeah. Well, not the spray, the, uh, the stuff that you could use on a windshield. Okay. It's liquid. I just, I, I'll pour a little bit on, uh, on a little glass surface like the back of a jam jar or something. And then I'll just dip my... Um, uh, English horn wire in that. So I'm just getting a little drop and then I just put that maybe a couple of them right directly into the vent. Uh, and I find usually I, that usually prevents water for maybe a few weeks. That's uh, a great tip. It, it, it works. You know, in the old days, um, what, what John Mack showed me as I recall, when I went to, uh, Hidden Valley camp, um, he would take the keys off and then sort of wrap the top joint in a towel and just spray that uh, borol directly, which, and so some would get into the, into the vent, but it was a little messy. I find this is more sort of accurate and surgically precise. Um, you're not getting all that stuff on the wood. That um, sounds better than what I've been doing, which is that silicone spray and it gets yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to find that now sometimes. It's yeah. I have done that too. I will, I will admit I, but to do that, I, 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 this is so primitive, but I hold my little English horn wire up in the air like this and spray enough that I get some drops on it. And then I just, you know, very carefully poke it into the. So you're basically like spreading the Rain-X or the silicone spray around the tone hole? No. Or are you dropping it? I'm, I'm literally with the key off, I'm literally poking that wire into the octave vent, that little teeny okay. pin size hole, so yep. that my drop of Rain-X or Woodman Borol, if you have it, either one, but it's just the drop or two. So it's a, it's okay. a remarkably small amount, but the point is it's going into the right place. Mm -hmm. And it does, yeah, that's my great. experience has been, it does seem to work. So, um, but I'm very anxious about cracks in the winter time. I've generally been uh, okay with that, except that, uh, a few years ago, I had an English horn top joint that cracked really very badly, and I felt terrible about it. And it's been—it's still a saga going on now. So, um, so, but what I, my current evolution for that, and this, I suppose, maybe this is a cold climate thing, but um, I always, of course, return the instrument to the case when I'm not playing it. 
I have it on a high shelf in a warm room. It's always in a warm room. And then <clears throat> what seems to really be working for me, which I'm really happy about, uh, if it's if we're having a very bad winter and it's well below zero outside, um, even if I'm just going to my car, my car is cold. So what I've been doing is I take a, a, a hot water bottle. Do you know what that is? Oh, yeah. It's like, it's like British people like to use it. My, my wife is English. So like if the bed's cold, you put the hot water bottle in the sh between the sheets in the bed, right? And at night. That sounds very yeah. nice, actually. It's very nice. And so I, f I fill it with pretty, pretty hot water, like maybe tap water from the tap. But so it's not boiling hot, but it's pretty darn warm. And then I put it um, between the case and the, the outside cover. So, so all I'm trying to say is that my instrument never gets cold. I think humidity control is another factor we can talk about in a second. That's, that's also critical. But to me, um, keeping it warm all the time, I don't want it to ever get cold. And of course, I don't blow cold air through it. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, excuse me, I don't blow warm air through it if it is cold, but it doesn't get cold by by using this trick. So I do that. I had been using um, uh, for humidity. I'd been using those dampets, those green worm mm -hmm. things, and now I'm not so sure that's great because a friend of mine pointed out to me that the that's causing the air around the instrument to, to be humid, not only on the outside, but the inside, right? And you need the inside, you want the inside to dry. So, so you know what I mean? So maybe that's actually not helping so much. So this year, for the first time, I'm going to try those Bovita humidity packs. Mm. Have you seen these things? It's no. the latest thing. It looks like it's about this. It looks like a, a pack of, of sugar. You know, it's about that size. Uh -huh. uh, my my colleagues in the BSO who play woodwind instruments, like our piccolo player and the bass clarinet player, they love these. They swear by them. I'm just literally getting in the mail any day now. Oh, cool! Um, this sounds some, way more high tech than the orange peel trick. Well, yeah, but I think the orange peel trick. I think the old guys might have been onto something with that. Actually, I think that might actually really be you know because they they sort of just evaporate enough over time. Uh, I'm not sure, but. They, th that's not a bad thing to do, but this is, yeah, this is a high tech way. The idea of the humidity pack is to keep the humidity constant. Whereas the, whereas the worm, I think, you know, the damp it is actually adding a lot of humidity when maybe you don't want, right. Cause you still need the, you need the board to be dry so that it doesn't expand and cause a crack. Can I ask you uh, to, can we ask you for some read details? Our listeners love yeah. hearing about reeds and equipment and your setup. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So let's talk about English horn. Um, uh, I use a fall staff shaper tip. I tie it 59 millimeters. Um, uh, I tend to not use wire. Um, uh, what else can I tell you? I use primarily my colleague, John Furillo's English horn gouger. Uh, the company he has, as you may know, is called Harvard Double Reeds. Um, Harvard is a very common name in the Boston area for people who don't know. Obviously there's the famous university, but 
that was established by John Harvard. But there's also a town of Harvard. And uh, John Frillo lives in the town of Harvard. So I think it's kind of a double reference, the, the name of the company. Another, di another digression for me. Um, I, like, I like John's equipment. I mean, and I use it not just because he's my esteemed colleague, but it's, uh, it's extremely well designed. Um, uh, even more than his gouger, uh, I uh, his reed knife, uh, I use... I use almost exclusively, although now for finishing, I've discovered I really like the Musico Infinity Knife. Is uh, it the replaceable blade? Yeah. Yeah. yeah cool. Yeah. yeah. I got to be friends with uh, Ming Jia, uh, and he kind of turned me on to it. We talked about it. I, so I, I think that's incredibly clever design, uh, and I like it for light. Personally, I like it for light work. I use it for that. I could, I could make the whole read with it, but... But I, I really like uh, Ferrillo's uh, beveled, beveled knife, the whole system. There's a system. You have to have the yeah. flat sharpening stone and uh, 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 jig, this thing that holds it at a certain angle. Um, I, if, if people are interested, rather than spending too much time talking about that here, I would just advise you to go look at his website because he has a video that explains what it does. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, just, I can get a really consistent edge. Uh, and it's a very fast edge. I can get a lot of work. I get a lot of wood off quickly, but also I feel like I have a lot of control. So, I, uh, um, <clears throat> I will admit that I make a lot, a lot of English horn reads, and sometimes I get a little behind, even with gouging and pre-gouging, all that stuff. So I do uh, sometimes just order cane directly from Inaletti that's gouged already. Mm -hmm. Um... um and I would give, uh, especially students, but other listeners, perhaps a little bit of advice on that subject. If you're, if you, let's say you're, uh, you're not into this whole business enough to even own a gouger yet, or you can't afford one. Um, what can you do to gain some control? I would re really highly recommend. Well, I tell my students anyway, also to buy a radius gauge and a micrometer, because I think then you sort of have a fighting chance of having some sense of whether you're going to have something that works because with all due respect to all the oboe supply houses, and there's so many around the country, um, sometimes you get cane from them that's gouged. That's not quite frankly, the highest quality. Um, we all, I assume we all think that the gouge should be about 0.6 millimeters in the center. We, we, most of us seem to be using that thickness. But you buy, sometimes you buy cane from a supply place and it's much, much thinner. You know, it might mm -hmm. be 0.53 or something. So you're just going to know that you, you're not going to be able to, probably not going to be able to make a read on that. So why bother, you know, or send it back or something? I don't know. Um, and with the radius gauge, you can, you'll have some idea, even with a gouged piece of cane, whether or not you're going to have an appropriate opening that you like. Mm -hmm. So that, those are two little tips for oval players, I would say that you can use sort of at any point, whether you're gouging or not. So yeah. that's great. And it's also nice to hear that somebody who performs at your level is also like, I need, I just need cane. Yeah. I just need cane. <laughs> right. Just like the rest of us. <laughs> right. 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 I'm pretty, absolutely. I'm pretty brutal with my reads sometimes, maybe a little too brutal. I, I, I joke with my, my students, I tell them, you know, I tell them to make the read your slave. You know, 
say to them, you know, I mean, in other words, if it's just not working out for it, it's like, it's a quick death. I have to say, you know, yeah. I, like, I, it's over for the, I, my colleague, Mark McEwen, um, who I've, you know, sat next to for 25 years. I sometimes, you know, he's playing long and boy, that read, that, that read, it's done. And it, it's like, wow, that was, you know, it's over onto the next <laughs> one. You know, it's like, I don't want to, I mean, we waste enough time in the damn things. It's like, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I almost feel like it's an inefficient process to make a read in the first place, but I'd almost rather just make another read. I was wondering if we could hear um, some special memories or stories specifically from touring. Uh, there are lots of orchestras, but not all of them get to travel and tour the way that the BSO does. So can we hear some of your uh, favorite experiences touring? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, once again, uh, just so fortunate to even get to do that. And, uh, you know, we're treated really well. Our tours, <clears throat> our tours are um, put together logistically, usually incredibly well. We have, you know, very talented uh, management and stage crew and all those people. So they, they tend to run smoothly. I mean, I can tell you, so I guess I'll I'll find a way to work in some stories about when things have gone wrong. But, um, oh, you know, when I first started, uh, right away, we toured Japan. That was in uh, uh, the fall of 1994. It was all Berlioz, wall-to-wall. Uh, -wall. Everything on the, on the, it was Berlioz. So not just the Symphony Fantastique, but the Requiem, which also has a huge amount of English horn in it, um, Romeo and Juliet. Um, that was all with Seiji in those days. Um, he loved Berlioz, uh, thankfully. Uh, so, you know, wonderful for us English horn players. Um, oh, a few years later, we got to, this is a weird tour, but a fun tour. We got to go to the Canary Islands and Florida in one oh. tour, uh, with, uh, Andre Previn. Uh, we had a long relationship with and liked very much. I got to play some chamber music with him. Um, he liked to collaborate. Uh, you all know the name Andre Previn, I'm sure. Of course. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. trio. Um, <clears throat> wonderful man. He really was an incredible raconteur. You know, he had so many stories. Uh, he gave us a party in the Canary Islands and, uh, and gave the world's longest speech, which was uh, one sentence. He said, uh, I hope the concerts aren't interfering with your tour too much. Or something like that, <laughs> you know, because he knew we were having a good time. So um, uh, then a few years later, uh, in 2001, um, we had the culmination of a tour. The date was, we culminated about September 4th, 2001, in Amsterdam, in the Concertgebouw. That was with Bernard Heitink, um, who was our principal guest conductor for a long time and we had a, a incredible reverence for uh we had a nice relationship with him everybody in the orchestra loved him he was he was a, he was a tough conductor but a great musician uh poor mark had uh, uh cut his finger so i ended up playing uh second oboe and english horn on the concert um so it was afternoon of the fawn uh and then brahms two on the second half I switched over and played second. And we, many of us remember that as being one of the best concerts we played. Um, it was very exciting. Oh. And also the timing, because then some of us sort of floated back to the States and some of us stayed in Europe and then 9-11 happened. Mm. So, um, there were a lot of colleagues who were stuck in Europe. It was a very 
it was a very difficult time. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, but uh, um, we've, you know, I, I, uh, we've had some wonderful tours with Andres Nelson's, our, uh, you know, terrific current music director, and we're, and we've pretty much finished recording all 15 Shostakovich symphonies, if you can imagine That's that. Amazing. So we play them a lot. We played, uh, we took the fourth on tour to Europe. We took the 11th on tour to Japan. Those both have big honking English horn solos in them. <laughs> Most people only know the eighth, but actually the 11th and the fourth also have big English horn solos. So, so those are super fun. Um, Mahler symphonies we've taken, you know, that's another great thing about playing in a big orchestra like mine is we'll tackle Mahler symphonies pretty routinely. Uh, they, awesome. That requires a lot of money, right? Yeah. You need a budget for a Mahler symphony or, you know, Rite of Spring. We've toured with the Alpine Symphony uh, more than once. I mean, that That's is so an cool. expensive opera. It's very cool. It's very wonderful. But talk about an expensive operation because you've got, I don't know, nine extra horn players for that piece alone, you know. Uh, and when we tour with Mahler 6, we have to bring the anvil, right? Right. You know, <laughs> And you can't uh, rent an anvil in every no, and, and I, I'm going to give another shout out to Mark McEwen because Mark is a, is a terrific and he has an engineer's brain and he loves making stuff. And he's made the, he made the anvil that we use for the tour. It's a, or rather the box for it. It's a huge box, wooden box. And the hammer is like, it literally has a arm like this long and the head is, you know, this huge. So there's drama, right? Because, you know, the percussionist is like, you know, <laughs> and the timing of that. Uh, but, you know, we tour with stuff like that. It's crazy. Uh, so that those are some, those are some good, really good tour memories. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so... We have come to the end of our time, which is so hard to believe. We've had such a great time chatting with yeah. you. And wow. our last question is always, what advice do you have for young musicians who aspire to have a career like yours? Right. Well, um, gosh, I'd, I'd have to say that's a multi, multi-pronged approach you're going to have to take. Uh, um which I suppose develops first and foremost from your own passion. Um, uh, I would say that passion is pretty important. Um, I say that in particular because oddly enough, I've met a few musicians in my career who happen to be incredibly talented at music and have made it even up to the level of the BSO or other orchestras like that. I'm not talking about oboists necessarily, but in other instruments who, who are not necessarily as inspired by the music. They just happen to be really good at doing, playing their instrument. Um, you'd be surprised. You, you find people like that. So, which is sad, I think in a way. So I think, uh, start with the passion and then, uh, you know, practice and be tenacious. T tenacity is probably the biggest thing, right? Is is perseverance and tenacity as much as you as it as, as much as you can bear it, because you know our profession is like being an actor. I guess it's fraught with rejection. Mm -hmm. So 
I, I joke with my students that, you know, if you really want to do this, you have to be a li- little bit like a barnacle or, uh, you know, you just hang on, you know, or, uh, um, you know, those uh, funny things they used to have called, called like bobblehead dolls, you know, bobblehead mm-hmm. dolls they put in the back of a car and they, and they go like this, you know, that's a good analogy because you sort of have to, you have to be a, prepared to like sort of be pushed backwards and then some somehow find your find an equilibrium and fall forwards, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some, those are some, some words of advice for trying to enter the profession, practice, 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 uh, try not to be discouraged. But I would even say one more thing, if I may, I know I'm, I'm glad in a way, I'm glad we're coming to the end of our time because I, I will, you, you have to just shut me up sometimes. I'll just say <laughs> okay. Really? Uh, there comes a point where you just have to shut me up. But, um, <laughs> I, I look out at, I, I have a lot of students in, in, a, in a group at, at, at one of the schools I teach at now, of all woodwinds, I'm, you know, kind of coaching a woodwind group. And, and I look out at them and there's some terrific talent there, but I know just statistically, not everybody's going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's going to be successful in the profession. But, and I, I hope this doesn't come off as sounding naive or like a Pollyanna or whatever, but in a way you're sort of if you if you happen to love this strange thing that we do or love so-called classical music which is very badly named to begin with um you're kind of already successful if you can hold on to that because a lot of people just don't come to this art at all they just they don't get it they don't know that they might like it they're intimidated by it they, you know what i mean mm-hmm. um that i know that like i said that's it makes might seem like a strange view, but I think if you can hold on to that, because a lot of people will end up, you know, maybe able to get another degree and then be successful at that. But but I have I have former students who play in basically what's like a kind of a community orchestra or whatever it is, their local orchestra, and they're very happy doing that, and I think that's fantastic. You know, maybe they aren't making all their living doing it, right? Uh, I mean, perhaps you two are, you know have some experience with that yourselves, right? You, you, you both have excellent teaching jobs, but you like to perform, don't you? And you, and you play in orchestras like that. You're not, you're not able to make your entire living playing in the orchestras you do, but you love to play. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's, that's as, as important as anything I do. Well, Rob, thank you so much for doing this with us. I can't wait to share this with our listeners. I know they're going to love it. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for asking me. It's really an honor to be asked. I'm very glad to be asked to do this and happy to do it. So, And it's very, very nice to meet you both. We hope you enjoyed that episode. We hope that everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday or at least just some time to chill out and be around people that you love and that you will, uh, we would be so thankful if you would grant our three wishes of oh, rating, reviewing, rating and reviewing on um, Apple Podcasts and following us on social media, one, two, three, you can make our wishes come true. Oh, that's good. I, isn't that manipulation? <laughs> Is <laughs> such a great tactic. Um, and um, Galit, who's coming up on the next episode? I'm like this day. I feel like I'm gonna listen to this and just be like, "Wow, Jackie!" But I'm tired. I, y'all are not getting the best of me, but that's okay. Galit, who's on the next episode? Next, we had just a fantastic interview with Julia 
Argenday, principal bassoon of the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads.